Would you bow with me for a word of prayer this morning? Father, we once again come to you, acknowledging our dependence upon you for all things. We're grateful that we can even understand your word because we have the spirit indwelling us who believe. And so we revel in the reality that we can know you. And we trust that this morning as we open your word, your word will accomplish all that you have set out for it to accomplish in us and through us, and that the Lord Jesus Christ would be magnified by us for your glory and to the praise and glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Well, I want to uh, ask you to open your Bibles with me to Jude, the book of Jude. If you don't know where that is, turn to Revelation and then turn back one page and you'll find it. It's right there. Jude. I know your bulletin said John 12 this morning. Fortunately, the email that went out said Jude, so that's where we are. We are in Jude. And uh, these things happen from time to time, as you know. Jude is um, one of the shortest books in the entire Bible. I suppose if we could just pin one phrase on it would be that big things come in small packages, right? Um, Dynamite blows up a lot. Even a little bit of dynamite blows up a lot, and Jude is that. It's only 25 verses. Um, It is 644 words in the New American Standard Bible. I was telling someone that last week. They asked me, how did you figure that out? I said, I counted them. Uh, And then I went to my Bible program afterwards and figured out that I could find out a lot faster than doing that rote work. So you thought someone smart was doing this for us this morning. It's not. 644 words in New American Standard. I don't know how many in the NIV or King James or other words. The the, uh, original language, it's only 461 words. So it's a very short book, and yet it is one of the most profound and like we learned in 1 Peter, Jude, or 2 Peter, Jude is a book of warning. It's a book of warning. We're going to find similar message in some ways tonight when we go through the book of Joel. You'll just kind of a little blurb. We're going to go through a 12-week series or study on the minor prophets. We're going to cover one book each night. Uh, in an overview fashion, by no means will we be covering every detail. And it's an opportunity not only for me to to go through a few of those, but also we're going to give some opportunities to some of our other men who have desires for preaching and teaching and these kinds of things and to challenge them as well. So you want to be here in our evening services as we start that tonight and go over the next several weeks. Obviously, it'll be three three nights a month, and then we have our prayer night on the first Sunday. So that, that night we won't be going through one of those. But It'll take us probably, what, 12, 16 weeks maybe or something like that. So tonight is our first night. But the book of Jude is much like Joel. It's a book of warning. It's a book of warning to the Christian, to you and I, who know Jesus Christ, who have placed faith in Jesus Christ, a book of warning to us concerning the schemes of Satan when it comes to the truth. How Satan operates, the ways in which Satan seems to infiltrate, if you will, we are told to watch out for the schemes of Satan. Peter, or Paul tells us that in, in Ephesians when we're talking about the armor. And so when we talk about the book of Jude, this is a warning for us to be, pay attention to the schemes of Satan as it comes to the truth. Truth today is at a premium, isn't it? 
In our world today, truth is at a premium. Everyone is asking for truth. And most people, many if not all, are saying that they have the truth. doesn't matter if it's contradictory. It doesn't matter if the information from one side is saying they have the truth and the other side says they have the truth. Both are claiming that they have the truth, even if the claim in some way has some truth in it. Both are saying they have the full truth. And yet most, if not all of it, in many ways, is not truth at all. And if there is any actual fact at all, it's so mixed with fabrications and lies that it's difficult to know truth from error. If there ever was a need for us to hear from this little book, it's now. In this war for truth, if you will, this battle that we are on, this is in a grand sense, Jude's message. And Jude gives us his message through two overarching messages, if you will, for us as the Christian. That for us to to strive, he's striving to get these messages across to us because of the importance of them in our own lives and in our day. One is that of a warning to us that in view of the fact that evil imposters have already crept into the church. Think about that. Evil imposters have already crept in. Peter was saying it's coming. Peter was saying, look, evil is coming. Watch out because false teachers will come your way. Remember he said that? There will also be false teachers among you in chapter 2 of 2 Peter. It's almost as if, yeah, warn, warn that they're coming. Well, now here's Jude saying they're here. They've already come. They've crept in. And so one warning is that they've already crept in among the church. Therefore, it's imperative for us as Christians to contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. The other message that Jude wants us to hear is that every Christian should build themselves up so as to be strengthened against any temptations that may come as a result of contending for the faith. In verse 20 and 21, he says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And so in many ways, The book of Jude for us today is much like the message, really, of Nehemiah in the Old Testament when Nehemiah was speaking to the Jews who had come back to Jerusalem after the captivity, and he exhorted them to do the work of rebuilding the wall, continue to build the wall, and in one hand have a trowel, and in the other hand have a sword. You do the work, but you be prepared for war. And so too, we are being exhorted to remain steadfast like that. To continue to do the work, to continue to be built up, to continue to remain steadfast, to continue on in the faith, and yet at the same time contend. Contend for the faith. Build yourselves up on this faith and pray in the Holy Spirit with this faith, all the while continuing to battle for the truth. It really shouldn't surprise us, Christians, that this is necessary. 
This is what the Apostle Peter reminded, or the Apostle Paul reminded Timothy of in 1 Timothy chapter, or 2 Timothy chapter 3. You can go there for a moment. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We've gone to this passage several times, and it, it seems to resonate every single time we look at it. He says, but realize this, chapter 3 of first, or 2 Timothy, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Well, we get shocked at that statement. We get shocked with the reality that we think we're not in those times oftentimes, and yet I think we are. We are in many ways. The last days, the days from Christ's ascension to the time He comes back is in fact the last days. So we are in those times. Difficult times will come. What? Well, what is it? For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Well, those two are happening. Boastful, that's happening. Arrogant, that's certainly happening. Revilers, that's happening at every level and at every turn. Disobedient to parents, that seems to go unchecked. Ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, they're brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, and conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That list just goes in a shocking way into our heart and says, really? That's bad. And it's even worse when you read verse 5 holding to a form of godliness. That's a shocking reality. These are people in the church. That list of those that are lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to, disobedient to parents, and ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, and without self-control, haters of good. These are people in the church. They are holding to a form of godliness. They're religious people even though they've denied its power. Paul says, avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sids, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Cannot miss the irony. We cannot miss the reality that Paul is describing some within the church. These are those who hold to a form of godliness, those who are, verse 7, always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Every time I read that, you ever ask yourself in reading that, why? Why, why is that happening? Why are these people in the church? Why are they always learning and yet never able to come to a knowledge of the truth? Why is it that some can be in and among the church listening? Why is it that can be in and among the church and even claiming to have a relationship with God? They have a form of godliness and yet they never come to a knowledge of the truth. They hear. They claim but they don't understand. Why? I mean, it's a valid question, isn't it? I, I mean, the truth hasn't changed. The truth is the same. You open the Scriptures, it's the same. 
The truth is the truth. It's unbending. It's unchanging. What God has said cannot change, nor can it be a lie. For God to change, for God to lie, means He is not God. So why then do they never come to a knowledge of the truth? Well, it seems that the truth never penetrates. It seems that the truth never gets in. Why? Because to understand carries the idea that when one hears something and what they hear confronts that which is wrong in their heart and in their life, and when they hear it about themselves, then real understanding comes through a willingness to forsake that and to embrace the truth. It's Proverbs 14.6 in action. This is why they never come to understanding. Because Proverbs 14.6 says, A scoffer seeks wisdom and finds none. You see, a scoffer seeks wisdom. They want, they want the right thing, but they scoff at it. And so they don't find it. But knowledge is easy to one who has understanding, that verse says. See, they can't understand because they scoff at the truth. They can't understand because if they didn't scoff, that would mean they would have to change directions by means of repentance. You see, beloved, Paul is describing those who continue to look at truth and continue to hear it in their ears, but they stop looking for what it means. You stop looking for what God means by what He says. They've gone to using Scripture out of context and piecemeal for their own social life. The Bible is a moral book. It's a book of truths equated with Aesop's fables. Some of it is myth, they say. Some of it is outdated. Some of it doesn't have anything to do with us today. The book is not inerrant. It is not without error, they say. And they say all of that simply to support positions and arguments that puff them up. I was reading this week a church website in Nashville, Tennessee. I think the name of the church was had Grace in the name. Grace Church or something like that. And it was a progressive Christianity, they said. We, we're, we're a progressive Christianity here. And, and part of their progressive Christianity was a complete denial of the truth of the Bible. They're holding to a form of godliness, but they deny its power. Well, Paul said to Timothy, avoid such men as these. They are lovers of self rather than lovers of God. And those who who never come to a knowledge of a truth are, are those who continue to look at truth, and yet they never gain understanding because of that. And so their understanding 
is like that of the Pharisees who sought to find fault with Jesus Christ's teaching. They sought to find fault with what Jesus was saying, the very God incarnate, the one who gave them the very word and the very law that they had abused. They they, they desired to find fault with Christ, and their desire to find fault was not based upon what God was saying, but rather was based instead upon their own thinking, their own twisting of the Word of God to accommodate their own lives. They saw but they did not see. They heard, but they did not understand at all. In fact, Matthew says in Matthew 13, verse 14, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled there. You will never, you will be ever hearing, but never understand. You will ever be seeing, but never perceiving. That was the Pharisees, that is the men that Paul is talking about to Timothy. And so when we turn to the book of Jude, and Jude says in verse 3 that I'm appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was one for all delivered to the saints. Why? For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. These are the men Jude's describing. These are those whom Jude is describing that have entered the church. They are those who follow their own ways, follow their own musings that are contrary to what the Scriptures teach. They do not look at the text in its context. They do not teach what it means by what it says. They are just like the Pharisees. Always hearing, never understanding. The Apostle Paul warned the Colossian believers in a similar way. He said to them, I want you to ensure that you that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. See, Paul was saying to the Colossian believers, I want you to ensure that when you're walking this walk of faith, you don't listen to those who, who muse about their own ideas who spew out their own words, their own false things, the things of their own mind, and devalue in any kind of way the Word of God. I want you to follow after some kind of supposed salvation that's after the traditions of men, the philosophies of men, the empty deception of men. No. There's salvation in no one else and only one way to be saved, and that is through Jesus Christ alone. It is not through Jesus Christ plus something else. It is not through Jesus Christ and the church. It is not through your efforts and through your works by which you come to know Jesus Christ. It is not that God looks down through the annals of time and in some kind of miraculous way finds somebody who likes Him down the road and therefore He chooses them. No one seeks after God. And so if God looked down through the annals of time to find those whom He would save, none of us would be saved. None of us would be sitting here today with any desire to know God. Because none of us were seeking after God. And so it is those kinds of people, the kind of 1 Timothy 3, who have crept in 
unnoticed. This is the message of the book of Jude. It's a warning to us to be careful to follow the faith. What's he mean by the faith? He means the body of truth once for all delivered to us. That's what he means. He's not talking about our, our, our belief, our entrustment to Jesus Christ, that our sins are forgiven, that we know Jesus Christ by faith. He's not talking about that in, in, the, in the grandest sense. In the grandest sense, he's talking about the truth, the body of truth that we have, the scriptures. That's what he's talking about. Just as God told Israel through Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 32 and 33, God speaking to the nation of Israel through Moses said, so be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you. Why? So that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. Simple principle being reiterated there by God Himself through Moses to the nation of Israel that when you obey God, there's blessing. When you disobey God, there will be trouble. And while most of us are not Jewish, and none of us Gentile believers are moving into the physical promised land as God was promising to Israel, the counsel that God gave through Moses to Israel still remains at the center of God's desire for us as believers. I command you to follow everything that I have said. Don't turn to the right or turn to the left. And so we are to be careful to do what the Lord our God has commanded us. We are not to turn to error. And therefore Jude is saying, let us strive together to that end. I wanted to write to you this way, but it's more necessary that I write to you that we strive together for the truth. Now, I just want to spend our time this morning on the first part of this text. We could benefit from simply reading all 25 verses this morning. I don't want to do that. I just want to read the first four verses. And then really just talk about what Jude says in verse 1. Notice what he says here. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Now, beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Because certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now over the next, today and the next week or so, we're going to get through these 
first few verses. And there will be a fourfold outline that we're going to follow just to kind of keep our thoughts together as we look at them. Verse 1 will be the description. The description. Verse 2 will be the desire. Verse 3, the direction. And then verse 4, the discernment. Verse 1, the description. 2, desire. 3, direction. And then 4, discernment. This is kind of the simple outline that helped me kind of keep my thoughts together as I was walking through this. Notice, first of all, that Jude describes just who he is. This is the description. Verse 1, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why I said this is the description. I'm labeling this as the description. He describes himself and he describes exactly who he's writing to. And we can learn much about Jude simply by listening to how he describes himself. You may not know this, but his name could be spoken of in this way, Judas It's an irony, I think, in my mind, at least as I look at this and read through this, that here is a man who is telling us to contend for the truth, who has the very name of the one who betrayed Jesus Christ. God takes one whose name would have been attached to lies and deception and destruction and places him here in his holy word to give us an exhortation to contend for the truth. I love that. Notice that Jude makes two significant claims about who he is. First, he says he is a servant of Jesus Christ. Jude, a servant, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. It's interesting for us to understand that the very mention of Jesus as Christ tells us that Jude saw himself as a a devoted servant of Jesus. It's a significant reality. Because we can learn from this that being a servant of Jesus Christ is something that every true Christian ought to be. And we ought to glory in that position. This is who we are. We are simply servants of Christ. We are not known by what we do in the body of Christ. We are not known by the things we accomplish in the body of Christ or the things that we accomplish in this world in which we walk. We are simply known as those who are servants of Jesus Christ. And we ought to glory in that. Sadly, it's not something many of us like to mention even today. Especially if we understand the term servant at all. Because the term servant just means slave. Slave. And you say that in some circles, you're about to be stoned right now. A slave? Don't tell me that you're a slave. Slave is a bad word. Slave is a word we should not use. Slave is a word that meant 
putting people down. Why in the world would you want to be the slave of anyone? It's filled with all kinds of inflammatory rhetoric today, that term. Just the mention of it. In any kind of positive sense, at least in our day, will cause you to be canceled quickly. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if the platform in which we put this sermon might not even have this sermon on there if they know I'm speaking about slave. The cancel culture will marginalize anything that they deem to not be what they want to hear. The public square has become a place that if you do not agree with whatever the public square is saying, you will be canceled. But the truth remains, every Christian is a slave of Christ. The truth remains, whether they want to hear it or not, or whether you want to cancel it or not, or whether you like it or not, the fact of the matter is we are slaves of Jesus Christ. And for Jude, for Jude, this was a far cry from his beginning days. Because the text tells us that he's the brother of James. Or Jacob, you would. History tells us that this is the James who was given the very name, the book we have in our Bible is named for, the book of James, writer of the Scriptures. He and Jude were brothers. And James and Jude were popular names in the ancient Near East. These were not names that most families would have had someone at least as a brother named that. And they were both half-brothers of Jesus Christ. We say half-brothers only because Joseph was not their physical, or Jesus' physical father. In a natural sense, Jesus was immaculately concepted. So both James and Jude identify themselves as Jesus' servant. If you go to the book of James, he identifies himself the same way. He's a servant of Jesus Christ, which really is a stunning change. It's a stunning change, knowing that in the days before the resurrection of Jesus, in the days when Jesus was walking the earth, in the days when Jesus was doing his ministry, in John chapter 7, It says this, for not even his brothers were believing in him. Jude and James are those brothers. There's some of those siblings. Jesus was going about his ministry in Galilee and he's unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews are after him. His time hasn't come and the Feast of Booths is at hand and his brothers come to him and say, hey, listen, you need to go there, depart from here, go into Judea because your disciples might see your works there, what you're doing. They were, they were saying it in a sarcastic tone, in a sarcastic reality because they weren't believing in Jesus. They weren't believing what he did. If you do these things in the world, they said, verse 4, if you do these things, that's doubt, that's unbelief, that's rejection. That's why John puts it in verse 5 of chapter 7, not even his brothers were believing in him. 
And so here is Jude, now a believer. Here is Jude, a transformed believer, now a believer in Jesus Christ. His life is now at the complete disposal of his Messiah, who happens to be his half-brother, Jesus. It's a radical change. And Jude puts it here for all the world to see, for eternity, time and eternity, for it to be here, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. No, I am not Judas, the one that betrayed Christ. Yes, I am Jude, who at one time was an unbeliever, but now here I am, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. A slave of Jesus Christ. I love that because isn't that one of the paradoxes we find in Christianity? That slavery to Jesus Christ is actually perfect freedom from sin. That we are transferred from the domain of darkness into the domain of His kingdom. That we are taken from the slave market of sin and transferred into freedom, even though it's a slavery best kind of slavery there is. Slavery to Jesus Christ gives us perfect freedom from the penalty of sin. And the truth of whom Jesus is sets us free. And so Jude says, my identity is not found in me. It is not found in me saying, hey, guess what? I'm the brother of Jesus, as if that might puff him up. He simply says, I'm in Christ. I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And I think that's why he mentions the second thing here, because that's what makes him so content in simply being the brother of James. (laughs) I'll tell you, when I read that, I just started to chuckle to myself and kind of resonate with this and have to confess my own heart before the Lord because I'm the brother of three older brothers. The identity for me in my life has always been the brother of somebody. I've been so-and-so's brother. And I hate to admit it, but I have to. I hate to admit it. For years, that's bothered me. Why? Because I have my own identity. I want to be known for who I am. I mean, after all, I, I, I've, I've done some things. I mean, look at my life. I mean, I, I didn't have to count on my brothers to help my life. I mean, and so when people would say to me, oh, you're so-and-so's brother, I'd say, well, they're my brother. Yeah, he's my brother. As if to to place some sense of my own personal identity forward. Jude doesn't do that. Jude just says, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Happens to be his brother. And I'm the brother of James happens to be the leader of the council in Jerusalem. No small figure in evangelicalism of that day. I'm just the brother of him. 
He's simply content to be known as the brother of James. You don't read any jealousy, no jealousy of his position, no jealousy that James was in this position of leadership in the church. He's just content to be found in second place. It's okay. It's okay. Why? Because the first thing that I am is a slave of Jesus Christ. And because I'm a slave of Jesus Christ, nothing else matters. It doesn't matter. I'm I'm the brother of James. And and probably he put that here, not only for that reason in his own heart, but because that, that gave him at least some kind of credibility for this church to listen to him. For the church at large, for you and I to listen to him. At least he had some kind of pedigree attached to him that his word might carry some resonance. And so as Jude describes himself, he describes then who he's writing to. Who he's writing to. And he does so not like you and I might today. Or even how many did in the day that Jude wrote this. Because we usually describe others by some kind of geographical location. In fact, you read many of the New Testament epistles and you read the writer writing to them of these people who are in certain places. You go back to Peter and Peter is writing to those who are in the geographical area in which he is writing. Bithynia and and Achaia and these places in the geographical area in which the people were located. Even Paul, as Tim said this morning, writing to the Christians in Rome. We even say that when we interact with one another. Oh, do you know so-and-so who's from? And we give some geographical location. But Jude uses another description. And I believe it's something that we can learn from. Notice that he describes them by listing three descriptions of what it means to be a Christian. Remember, he's going to say certain ones have crept in. Certain persons have crept in. And the description we get in the, in the verses that follow that are certainly of someone who's not a Christian, someone who fits the description of Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Those who are ungodly, those who have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. And yet here Jude begins his letter, I'm writing to Christians. This is genuine Christians. Notice, first of all, they are the called. They are the called. Kalos is the word here. It's not ecclesia. It's kalos. And I just simply think Jude puts that there because he's writing to all believers. He doesn't list some specific geographic area. He doesn't list some specific church like we find in Revelation 1 and 2 or chapter 2 and 3. He, he's just writing to all Christians, the called This is an identification in terms of spiritual life. That's all it is. It's it's those with a spiritual identity in Jesus Christ. That's the idea. In other words, Jude is writing to you and I. He's writing to those who are the first readers of this letter. He's been writing to everyone since the centuries have gone by, and he's writing to you and I here today for all true believers because they have been called of God. You and I are right there. 
personalize this letter. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James to you, Terry. I'm writing this to you. In fact, the original text says it this way. To those who by or in God the Father have been called. To those who by or in, depending on which preposition you want to use there, by God the Father are called. You have been called. And that classification alone, that, that grammatical makeup of that phrase takes us to the reality that for any of us to be saved, there has to be divine initiative. For any of us to be sitting here today and be in the family of God, God had to do something. He had to take the divine initiative. He had to direct His love toward us. And through the means of preaching of the gospel, which commands us to believe, and under which the gift of faith responds, we heard. God called us. In other words... There is no such thing as a Christian who has not been called of God. True Christians are called. They're called of God and the called of God always respond to the gospel by genuine faith. Always. And because they respond in genuine faith, which is a gift of God, then thereby they strive to obey Christ. Jude is really saying, listen, you're never a slave of Jesus Christ until first you've been called. Don't claim Jesus Christ without truly knowing Jesus Christ. That very idea is pervasive throughout the Scriptures. Pervasive. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Do you see the juxtaposition of those two things? You're called and therefore you obey. Follow a few passages with me. I read it this morning, Psalm 135. Sometimes you wonder where I get these texts from when I'm reading them in the morning. Well, I always try to at least tie some of that to what we're teaching. I don't know if you noticed, but he says in verse 4, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. They didn't choose God. God chose them. And God has chosen us in that same kind of way. Over to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Verse 25 and 26. At that time Jesus answered and said, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you did hide these things from the wise and intelligent and did reveal them to babes. Yes, Father, for for this it was well-pleasing in your sight. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen, those whom you have chosen, those are the ones who are called. Those are the ones who hear Just before that, he said, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. 
For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which were occurred in you, you they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. You heard the truth. You rejected it. Your judgment will be far worse than those who never heard the truth and yet still are rejecting. Said the same thing to Capernaum. He healed in the synagogue in Capernaum. And yet he says, they will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom and Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Well, we know what happened to Sodom. Nevertheless, I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. What? What? Matthew chapter 24, chapter we go to often when we think of the judgment of God. Matthew 24, verse 22, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, the chosen, those days shall be cut short. Even the judgment time to come, it will be cut short simply because God has chosen those to save. John chapter 10. John 10 and verse 16. Of course, Jesus talking about him being the, the good shepherd before that. John 10, verse 16, And I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. I have other sheep. I've chosen others. I'm going to go get them. We're going to join together. We'll be one flock. Of course, most... Turn to passage Romans 8, verse 28, through the end, through 33. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren, and whom He predestined, He also called. And whom He called, He justified, and whom He justified, He also glorified. So what do we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 13 and 14, Apostle Paul tells the church, we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. You see, we don't have faith in lies. We don't have faith in manufactured things. We don't have faith in fabrications. We don't have faith in myths. We have faith in the truth. 
the absolute truth. And it was for this he called you through our gospel, Paul says, that you might gain glory, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, we've been called to that purpose. We've been called to know the truth. We've been called to live the truth. Therefore, because we are called, we therefore are beloved by or in God the Father. That's why Jude puts it that way. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father. God called us unto salvation because He placed His love upon us. See, we weren't called before that. We were called because of that. We are beloved in God the Father because we're beloved by God the Father. In fact, in the original language, the impetus to this participle, which is what it is in the English, in the original language, that's the impetus on the participle. Right? He loved us in the past. You have been loved by the Father because you have been, or you have been called because you have been loved by the Father. In other words, there's a never-ending love and the consequences flow to our very lives to say the least of the fact of His effectual salvation of us. This is what the love of God has done for us. That is simply to say that based upon the sovereign wisdom of God, He chose us solely because of His merciful love expressed toward us through His Son. That's it. And He did all of that before He ever created time. That's why I said, therefore our salvation is not God looking down through some future time and seeing who might have some kind of affinity for Him. That's an impossibility. And therefore he would choose them because somehow he sees something in them worthy to be saved. No, it was his simple motivation of love. He was motivated by nothing else, simply his love to love us only by his own good pleasure. That's why you and I are true believers in Jesus Christ. That's why you and I are slaves of Jesus Christ. We are those who have been divinely elected to salvation by means of the saving love of God through Christ. And so we sit here today. We didn't earn it. We didn't earn our way into it, and therefore none of us can lose the way. We're the called which indicates that we have been beloved by God. See, that's why we were called. And if you have not been beloved by God, then you will never be called. You understand that? And because we are called, that indicates the third reality of every Christian. He says they're kept for Jesus Christ. We are kept for Jesus Christ. The word keep means to keep under guard. To keep under guard. We are kept under the guard of Jesus Christ. I used to be in the Air Force. I guarded the assets of the United States of America with a gun. For the first two years of my life, I sat in a small box and looked at a brick building and 
waited for the assets to come out of that building. Fortunately, they never did because that would have meant we were at war. I guarded them. That's what Jude's talking about. He's talking about preservation. He's talking about us in our very lives, the preservation of you and I as believers, the preservation of the called. We heard it in Jesus' words in John chapter 10, right? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. That's what he says. My sheep hear me, they know me, they follow me, and they will never perish. Why? Because no one will snatch them out of my hand, and my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Don't ever tell me we can lose our salvation. Ever. If someone says that, they are someone who have crept in unnoticed. Telling a lie. So John, right in the gospel, makes one of the clearest statements concerning the fact that no true Christian can ever lose the gift of salvation. Why? Because God is keeping us. It's like Paul said, if God is for us, who can be against us? He has kept us in the past and he's keeping us in an ongoing and eternal consequential way. So why then is all this important to us as we begin and why would Jude begin this way? Because you and I in verse 4, or verse 3, I'm sorry, are commanded to fight. We are commanded to fight. Contend earnestly. We are commanded to fight for the truth. And it's only upon that ground, it's only upon that foundation, it's only upon that reality of our lives of being true Christians that we can fearlessly engage those who are false. We came out of 2 Peter and we saw a grand description of who the false are and now we're called to fight. Well, this is the only ground on which we can stand and which we will fight fearlessly for the truth. Because listen, if we believe that our eternal security is in jeopardy, if we think for some reason or doubt in the slightest way that we can somehow lose our salvation, if you and I in some kind of small way succumb to the schemes of the devil to stir up some kind of reluctance in us to proclaim the truth, the truth that we say we love, in fact, any of that is in our minds, then we will be tempted to be silent when we need to speak when we hear error. We'll be tempted to not say anything. And worse yet, worse yet than just remaining silent is that we may not even recognize the error. We doubt the clear truth of the Word of God. We may not even recognize when error comes. And so Jude says, no need to worry. No need to worry. You're beloved. You're called, beloved, and kept. 
No need to worry. Stand strong. Stand strong. We hear, we hear similar words from Paul in the book of Ephesians at the end, chapter 6. And Paul says to us, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God. You know there's a problem with armor. Armor's great, but it's worthless if you don't put it on. It's bad if you don't have it, but as a Christian, it's worse if you don't put it on. Beloved, we're secure. We have everything we need. Paul says, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. This is Jude's message. This is Jude's description. Just a slave of Christ. One who's called. One who's beloved. And one who's kept. We have the armor. We got to wear it. Servant of Christ. Nobody. Who's just said, listen. Get ready, the battle's here. So let each of us who know Christ, let each of us who are true believers be sure-footed in our understanding of this truth. And those who do not yet believe, those who are here this morning who have yet to believe upon Jesus Christ, each one of us who knows Jesus Christ, our plea for you is to reject or stop rejecting and embrace the Savior. Stop rejecting. Stop rejecting. Well, next time we'll get the desire, direction, and discernment. I think that's a good beginning for us. Would you pray with me? Father, once again, we are grateful that we can just open your word, that we can ponder the truth, that we can understand it that you have given us your spirit. And we don't have to be like those who have crept in. We don't have to doubt. Your word is true. It is absolute. It is unchanging. It reflects your very nature because it is your word. No wonder you hold your word as high as your name. And so, Lord, we praise you for that. We praise you that you have called us. We are beloved and that we are secure in Christ. Help us to never doubt those things, even in the smallest of ways. But when we are in the war, when the schemes of Satan are right before us, we will speak the truth. Even if that means they light the flame under us, we'll speak the truth simply because it honors and glorifies you. We thank you for this encouragement, this challenge. Use it in our lives for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.